What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. Hope you all had a great Christmas and New Year's holiday. Uh, this is episode two in the series with Joel, aka Untapped Growth. If you didn't check out episode one, it's not necessarily required, but there we do touch on some of the same, or we do continue some of the same uh, topics that we started in episode one. So if you really want continuity and coherence with the whole uh, series, then I recommend checking out episode one first, which was about five or six uh, podcasts ago, I think. Also, I'm extremely pleased and proud to announce that uh, CoinKite, the makers of the cold card hardware wallet, the Block Clock, the Block Clock Mini, Open Dime, Seed Plate, and many other fun Bitcoin products has come on to support the show. I've been a huge fan of this company for a very long time. They've been in the space for over a decade, um, and the people behind it are amazing too. And they really adhere to the principles, principles of Bitcoin in everything they do, which is one of the reasons why I think they've endeared themselves to me and so many others um, in this space. Their flagship product, the Cold Card Hardware Wallet, is one of the gold standard products in this industry for custodying your Bitcoin. So if you have not yet taken custody of your Bitcoin, I highly recommend you do so. And of course, if you already have and you're looking for a way to round out a multi-signature scheme, for example, the cold card wallet is excellent for that as well. And if you want to check out their stuff, just go to coinkite.com for more information. And if you have not yet purchased that Bitcoin and you're in Canada, the way to do it is to go to bullbitcoin.com send your money to them, buy Bitcoin, and then they automatically send it directly to your own cold storage, perhaps on your own cold card hardware wallet. They are a non-custodial exchange, which means they don't hold your Bitcoin. Soon as it's bought, they send it to you, which is the way, in my opinion, it should be. Also, they've just launched BitcoinSupport.com. This is a service for either you or people you know who want to buy Bitcoin, want to hold Bitcoin, understand that it's something that's uh, increasingly important in the world today. However, they're a little bit intimidated by the task of actually taking custody of it. This service is effectively designed to hold people's hands to make sure they get things set up in the proper way. So go to bitcoinsupport.com and check out the different packages they have available. And finally, the Bitcoin 2022 conference. I talk about it all the time. I can't wait. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be three times bigger than last year. Last year, they had about 10,000 people capacity, uh, at the convention center this year is 35,000. It's an incredible time to meet a bunch of awesome people, connect with your the plebs you've been interacting with, listen to a couple of great speakers, and have a shitload of fun. And it's on Miami Beach this year, which I think is gonna make it even more fun than last year. So if you wanna go, no matter which ticket you choose, at checkout, use the code RAPIDFIRE and get yourself 10% off. That's it, enjoy the show. Let's do it. You ready just to dive in? I got it now. Yeah, I'm good to go. All right, you want to intro it, or you just want to start talking? I think you just did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, perfect. Part two, part two with Untap. Beautiful. So I want to, I want to jump back with a little refresher of one of the key pieces we closed with last time, John, with yeah. the Dialectic of Desire by C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to read a little brief little summation of it. The Dialectic of Desire, he said, faithfully followed, would force you not to propound, but to live through a sort of ontological proof. Later in Mere Christianity, another book by him, he most famously stated, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Go on. 
<laughs> I just want to dive in right there because this do, idea. What, what do you think that means? Well, if, if you think about it, right, we're, we're made for another world. It's like we all have this hunger to create around us a realm that is other than what we currently exist in. That hunger is the centerfold of all beauty we create. But it goes back to what we were talking about before, right? Of most real great creation, whether you're talking a scientist like Albert Einstein discovering a theory and saying that like, this is beautiful and that's part of why I'm exploring it because if it's so beautiful, it has to make sense and I just don't understand it yet. Or like an incredible musician where it's like, you're telling a story using the instrument. It's like, is the song playing me or am I playing the song? Is this just flowing from the instrument and I'm discovering it or am I creating it, right? Or like we say that even about Bitcoin. Was Bitcoin created or was it discovered? There's this synchronicity between discovery and creation where it's almost like romance. Like you think about a really good romance between you and a girl, right? It always feels like, like this is, it's mythic. It was meant to be like this was foreordained and you're my soulmate. And this was, this was, we are created for togetherness, you and I, and we're meant for each other. But at the same mm -hmm. time, it feels like absolute freedom where it's like, we're discovering the world together and I'm learning you and you're telling your parts of the things you find beautiful and and there's no sense of being controlled by this thing that feels preordained. It's this place where creation and discovery become one. It's a place of co-authoring, right? Like one, one of my base worldviews is that romance is the lens through which to interpret reality. And, and what I mean by that, romance I would define as co-authoring. It's more than one person coming together and telling a story where they tell their line and you tell yours and together you're discovering the unfolding but also creating it it's, it's like that children's game right where you would sit down and they would tell a line and then you would tell a line to create this fictional story and you'd go in the circle and you'd come up with this ridiculously humorous adventure story that all the kids are giggling their heads off right but like to me all of life is like that like that's what we're doing in existence together is none of us truly know what this is going to look like. I mean, I would even argue that even God is a part of the co-authoring of the story because he created us with that slice of the divine of that free will in us to choose to be able to be authors and rights with him. So he is intentionally given us space to unfold the story larger than what he could tell without us. So if we start there, and I don't think we need to cover too heavily between you and I and your audience this idea that like utilitarianism is a hollow world, that a world just based upon purpose of, I don't know, like scientific and rational value is not really going to get you very far. Because that, that inevitably kind of concludes in this whole nihilism thing, right, where it's a scarcity mindset. If there's not enough resources, we need to be communist to control it all versus we tend to think of people who think like creators and sons of the world's limitless, the sky is limitless, and we can, through our creative abilities, solve any problem that exists and play a non-zero-sum game, right? So the real question is, how do we come together to collaborate in playing this non-zero-sum game where each of us being the fullness of ourselves is also not taking room from one another, but making more room for one another? So that each person who ascends into their full capacity 
is actually creating more space for others to do the same versus competing for finite scarcity, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we are stumbling into this Bitcoin community is that absolute scarcity unlocks infinite potential. It's this idea of the Renaissance men, right? Where when we run into this zero bound where produce value or die in order to participate in this network, it forces you to dig into where does real value come from? That goes back to what we covered in the first one, like work, right? Like proof of work. But it inevitably just leaves this yearning question of what work should I be doing? And that goes back to purpose. So, so I'll, I'll just stop there. That's kind of the intro of what you've got me thinking with the topics you wanted to roll into here. But um, do you have any thoughts so far on any of that, John? Yeah, totally. But I think, uh, I think the last point, we really want to try to come back to the last point you mentioned, because I know we're always all over the map here. But, uh, you know, just on that, on that quote, before I dig into anything else, part of that is live through an ontological truth. What does that mean to you? What's your interpretation of that? Here, let me pull up this other thing I have up here. If a man diligently followed this desire, pursuing the false objects until their falsity appeared, then resolutely abandoning them, he must come out at last into the clear knowledge that the human soul was made to enjoy some object that is never fully given, nay, cannot even be imagined as given and our present mode of subjective spatio-temporal existence. It's this idea that things shake out to show us what we're really looking for, and our desire is the key and the gateway if we're faithful to it. It's like, mm, like we've been given this roadmap inside through the lens of our hungers to what we are capable of, right? Um, like, like Pascal said this really well too. He said, man is so great that his greatness appears even in the consciousness of his misery. A tree does not know itself to be miserable. It is true that it is misery indeed to know oneself to be miserable, but then it is also greatness. In this way, all man's misery grew, gr go to prove his grandeur. They are the miseries of a mighty, mighty potentate, the miseries of a dethroned monarch. How do you, how would you allow your desire to be a, a high fidelity or a trustworthy compass on that pursuit, right? Because desire can lead you astray very easily too. So how do you, how do you best orient your desire such that you can trust that even if you you know, if you have that type of faith that you'll allow yourself to believe that it's uh, the, you know, perhaps the maximal obtainable guide, right, to, to the, uh, the forever unobtainable truth sort of thing. But how do you have confidence that your desire is something that can be trusted? Yep. It's interesting. Like C.S. Lewis also talked about that in the section not far from the one we read earlier. So there's a peculiar mystery about the object of this desire inexperienced people and inattention leaves some inexperienced all their lives suppose when they feel it that they know what they are desiring thus it comes to a child when he is looking at a far-off hillside he at once thinks if only i were there if it comes when he is remembering some event in the past he thinks if only i could go back to those days if it comes a little later while he's reading a romantic tale or poem of perilous seas and fairy lands forlorn 
He thinks he is wishing that such places really existed and that he could reach them. When it darts out upon him from his studies in histories or science, he may confuse it with the intellectual craving for knowledge. But every one of those impressions is wrong. Every one of these supposed objects for desire is inadequate to it. He even talks about that he and himself struggled on this journey and most of his life was spent trying to figure out what it even he was dis- discovering or desiring to discover because mm. for him he his quest towards truth started with this idea of romanticism where he was even trying just to understand what this hunger itself is or means right and this is where we integrate the last talk we had about proof of work where if what you desire is the truth it'll work. It will create goodness and beauty in the world. Now, granted, we need to have a low time preference with that. We can't just extract value for temporary measures, right? Like, well, I go back to a simple one. I always talk about a farming and say that, look, I produce more value this year. So this must be the system that works. Like, no, like, can you do this in perpetuity, right? Mm-hmm. Can you step outside of time and have this be a timeless truth that creates value forever? And the way we know if our desires are real or not is just doing the work. Is you follow them out until you see if this creating what it is that I desire. And you let the friction and reality intrude. You don't hide from it. Right? Mm-hmm. That's where most mistakes happen. I mean, that's where we got the whole salty no-coiner syndrome where they're just ignoring reality because it's too painful. The opportunity cost was too high. The sunk cost was too high. It's grinding against their own personal worldview and they're not letting it shape them. Mm-hmm. It's ability to submit to the information as it feeds back into the system quickly and rapidly of knowing that what I am going through here, is it true or not to what I originally wanted? And not allow... The pain of the moment, the lack of hope of the moment, or any of those things dissuade you from remembering. And then yeah. I think that's the key. Go ahead. You think that's what? The key? Yeah, I think that's the key, right? Because we, we as humans, we're woefully forgetful creatures. We, we hate to remember. We want to drift from one thing to another to convince ourselves that whatever temporary idol we have is a satisfaction of our desire when deep down we know that it isn't Mm -hmm. and that's the greatest lie right i mean if even if you go back and look in the garden of eden the first thing where humanity fell was they believed a lie and that's the basis of every lie believing something is true when you know inside it isn't because There's a part of you that remembers what you really wanted. And there's a part of you that knows how much it costs to be faithful to that. And everything we look at when somebody chooses a diminished version of self or is deceived by desire, they're allowing the pain of remembering to cause them to hide from really being honest. Mm. It's like, the work even in just staying true is a part of the work. 
because that in itself requires an exertion of will to maintain hope to see beyond the current moment mm-hmm. uh, what I'm having now while good isn't exactly what I was dreaming of it isn't enough yeah you know this it's like is... we're too easily satisfied yeah and I think a lot of that comes from fear you know one of the things that I explored in the most recent piece was this uh, perhaps unavoidable uh, mechanism of consciousness to hold on to the things that are, let's say, most truthful. And this, this, this idea of continuously refining the truest truth by which to order yourself with, because that's the greatest form of feedback that you can get to move you towards your, your goal, right? And I think there's a a big aspect of courage here. And I think this is why personal development and understanding oneself is so important because if you engage in that process and, you know, all the better if you do so consciously, or perhaps it's essential that you do, you do so consciously. And that's part of the problem that we have today where so many people are subject to this process sub uh, subconsciously or unconsciously, but you, cause truth is, 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 it can be challenging, but it's also comforting, right? Because if it, if it really is that thing that allows you to pass through reality with the least amount of friction, then it's, it's a good thing, right? It, 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 at least temporarily. And maybe you find that you need to upgrade the truth continuously because you get to one and it helps you for a while, but you realize it's not true enough to allow you to pass through an even, uh, for lack of a better term, more valuable or more, um, a, a part or, or goal within reality that you more want to achieve, right? Perhaps the truth that you've used to get you to one level, as it were, is not sufficient to get you to the next level. But I think uh, part of that process is, is courage. And this is where ego and humility comes in as well, because you can find that orienting, comforting truth. And I think a lot of people get kind of tied up in this. And it works good enough. Works good enough for a particular environment or a particular you know universe of your own action and potential action and you hold tight to it because it it allows for that domain to be familiar and and workable but if if you want to expand that domain the domain over which you can establish dominion let's say to use that kind of language then you need to be able to have the courage to relinquish a previously discovered or useful truth in service of, of journeying or endeavoring to find a better one. And that in-between period, you're kind of unmoored, right? You're not locked down to anything that's keeping you comfortable. And one, you need courage there. And I think two, you need tremendous humility because you need to be able to kind of wander off into the, the night sea uh, and believe that there's something greater to discover and have the courage to actually discover it. And, um, you know, as you were saying, what you were just saying, like th- this is what came to my mind about continuously trying to find that higher truth and that, that, uh, that whole journey in itself requiring a great degree of, of humility. And I guess a certain type of faith, right? A, a faith and maybe an understanding that that is a worthwhile cause to continuously refine and move up that ladder as it were yeah and there's so many pitfalls too right like we have this tendency to mistake arrogance as confidence but 
but arrogant people are not doing the work because they're not doing the work of the suffering, the fear and the humility that it requires to do the ego death to really discover. Mm-hmm. It's like they're trying to pound their head and exert their own will, but not co-author. Or you have the other extreme of people who promote humility as if it's a virtue where there is no truth. And like, we're just all along discovering, you know, and but like nobody ever goes anywhere. It's like there's all these people who create all these excuses to avoid doing the work. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like I, I, I want to ask you a question that seems off topic, but it'll circle back around. When you think about people who are living in their most powerful state, we often talk about this idea of the flow state. How would you define the flow state, John? Hold on, I'm just taking a note here. I want to come back to uh, I would define the flow state as... Uh, effortless right action or effortless optimized action, something like that. So per the paradigm of our conversation here, we could define it as the integration of work and rest. Yeah. It's where you're flowing from your most powerful self to do the work with the least amount of effort because you're just being your truest self. Mm-hmm. So how do we know where that flow state is for us? So it goes back to this idea of like the dethroned monarch. We have these desires in us that show us what we're capable of. Like, like I would argue that what makes us greater than just mere animals is those desires because they're the gateway towards mythic reality towards things that are larger than life itself or like the spiritual right the transcendental i would say that those desires are the key to purpose within us because those desires are what we're made for. when you're living faithful to your desires they lead you towards the place where you're most at rest being your truest self while doing the work mm-hmm. and one of the greatest like tragedies of humanity is how so much of culture pushes people away from that journey. We spend our whole lives doing everything but trying to discover that place of rest of being our true self. Mm-hmm. Like imagine if we had a whole economy of people who existed perpetually in the flow state because they've been faithful to do the work early in their life to discover who their real self is, to be authentic of being able to do maximally optimized work. Yeah, it would be amazing. I mean, what would the world be like? I mean, (laughs) how many people are in their office jobs being drug along thinking like this is so pointless and useless? So like phase one here is like Bitcoin fixes us to this energy currency that forces us to focus on real value again versus this bureaucratic administrative fake paper economy, right? Mm. But then the next, is like okay i'm adding real value to the world because it's real value disciplined by reality but am i adding my best value and the most value i could like this is like the phase two conversation of what do we do once bitcoin hyper bitcoinized and now we're a part of this network and we have to make wealth by being better at the game Mm -hmm. being better at the game of being our best self of work <laughs> yeah. of creation. I think this is why there's a subconscious impulse to refine oneself that seems to be emerging through Bitcoin and which you and I talk about all the time and I focus a lot on. 
And there's there's many reasons for it, I, I, I think, but I definitely think this is one where there's this like creeping subconscious impulse drive recognition realization that like I'm entering into a space, a world, a network, a community, a market where my, you know, my competitive value, my differentiating factor is actually what's going to be exclusively unique to what I can best manifest about my unique self, something like that. You know, I know that sounds kind of corny, but it is what you're saying, right? It's like, what, what else could be a higher ideal for an individual than determining the thing that is, you know, of the utmost meaning to them and doing their best to bring it forth into the world in the highest fidelity or most abundant form possible. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you could define a, a, a greater objective than that, you know? And, um, and so I think people are beginning to get this creeping impulse that that is the type of market or world that a money like Bitcoin is going to allow for or foster. And again, I think this is why we see a lot of us reflecting back on ourselves now, why these even a conversation like this is even happening and why there's an appetite for it is because we're, you know, we're, we're coming out of the sludge of, of having to uh, push our souls and the better aspects of ourselves and our higher ambitions down into the deepest depths of ourselves just to punch the clock in and go to that shitty office job that you mentioned. And now as, as we're being liberated from those obligations, even if you're not liberated financially yet, but knowing that a system is emerging by which you will be, uh, it's, starting to, yep. it's starting to make relevant again, or perhaps make relevant, make more relevant than ever before, the question of, you know, to sum up, you know, the language we've been using here, like, how do I engage my quote unquote flow state? You know, like, how do I engage the, my, how do I become, uh, yeah, how do I actualize the, the, the principles that are most meaningful to me with the capability, with the, my highest capabilities and what and how does that manifest? Something like that. How do I put myself in the best position to manifest yep. that stuff? And see, this is where I would just introduce the terminology of we must become our authentic self. You must be the self that is truest to the real you. Yeah. And that's not an easy journey. No. Because that being our authentic self is what unlocks that place. Like, like if you had to, if you had to look at your own self, John, how how would you say you are doing in that journey of being your truest self on a day-to-day basis? Like, do you feel like you succeed at it every moment, every day? Do you feel like you even know the full magnitude of your truest self and what you're capable of? Like, it's a, do you, it, are you it, aware of what distracts away from it it's a tricky question so i'd answer it in two ways one i'd say to the extent that i know what it is i feel like i'm fairly good at being it you know like being authentic and honest and, and truthful has always been my primary driver let's say and i felt i've always yep. felt really bad when i've had to be or i've you know i've convinced myself that being disingenuous to some degree is beneficial i've always it's felt really icky. And I, I, so I've tried not to do that, but the latter part of the question is more difficult because it's saying like, well, do you even, you back? I'm here. I didn't lose much. You said being disingenuous is icky. Yeah. Yeah. So that part, I think I, you know, I can manage fairly well. The latter part is more difficult because 
you're asking like, well, do you even know what your authentic self is that you're, you're supposedly adhering to or bringing into the world? And I mean, that personally, I guess the answer is not really right. And this is the, I think this is the value of seeking um, the most absolute or truthful principles, because I think those are the things that allow you to investigate yourself and come up with an answer that allows you to optimize what you bring into the world through your action. And so this is why I guess I'm kind of obsessed and culture has been obsessed with the religious enterprise for the last, you know, five to 10,000 years in trying to determine like, what are the principles that if you adhere or align to them, allow you to access that uh, most genuine aspect of yourself and bring it, bring it forth into the world. I'm where, back. It's where, just where, dropping and coming right back. Where did you what are the me? principles that allow you to access? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, my answer to the question was like, I'm not sure, but that's the journey I'm on. You know, I'm, I'm trying to, because I, I have, I feel like I've uh, learned enough and maybe there's an element of faith here that the, the truest principles that you can align yourself with, the, the, the whole reason why you might do that is because of what manifests as a result of really embodying those principles or those values. That's the way to bring yourself most into best being, something like that. What about yep. you, Joel? Well, well, let me ask you a question first. <laughs> How much in this series do we want to stay topical versus allow it to get deeply personal? Uh, I would like it to be as natural and you know, authentic as possible. So I, I don't really care. Okay, because this is so integrated that I don't really even know how to pull them apart unless they go really super personal on it. Yeah, no, I, I got nothing to hide, man. So let's let's go. It's like each of us is a microcosm of the culture we want to create in the world of understanding what this new worldview is we're venturing into, right? So what sure. better way than just to talk about our own experience of it? Absolutely. So what would you say that you've discovered so far of who the truest self of John Vallis is? What pieces do you have and how do you know they're the right pieces? Hmm. Well, I mean, it, it, it's, I have no apprehension about sharing this, but finding, finding the words is difficult. So permit me uh, a bit of humming and hawing here, but you know, let's start at least where there's some clarity and one has been truth and honesty. Like, I, I don't know what the, the end point is, the end game is like, whatever, but I, I feel like being honest and pursuing the truest truth that I am able to access is one of the best ways of getting there. You know, and that, that has like brass tacks influenced a lot of my day-to-day -day life, right? Like one of the things that I've, you know, for many, many years now tried to establish and maintain has been like a, a, a mental clarity, a degree of mental clarity, a high degree of mental clarity. And that has meant that like my daily routines, how I wake up and how I treat my body and my diet and all that kind of stuff has been oriented towards that. So that very much influences my life. And of course, that other, has other benefits like being healthy and strong and capable and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, pursue, being honest and pursuing truth has definitely been an element of that. And re, can you re-ask the question so I can recenter myself here? So what parts or what would you say is 
John Vallis being his authentic self. Who is the authentic self of John Vallis boiled down into like a couple of sentences? <laughs> While you unpack thinking about that some more, I'll give you another thread in parallel. Sure. So you're talking about pursuing clarity and mental clarity. Are there any practices you do in that that also focus on spiritual clarity? I'm pretty sure there are in your life as well, right? Um, see, for me, it's all very much wound up. Like, I, I, I think that all the quote unquote physical diet, exercise, time in nature, whatever, like that's just as spiritual as it is practical. Like, I'm, I'm trying mm -hmm. to, you know, I'll use a corny cliche phrase, but like, I am trying to purify the vessel as much as possible so that I can access or receive or however that relationship is constituted so i can gain greater access to um to what right uh, to that kind of wellspring of joyous peaceful energy that seems to underlie existence or be you know the love of existence you know <laughs> again to be super cliche here but if if, if we're going here like and I would say, you know, my essence to the, the previous question and the, the thing that I try to return to when daily life, you know, draws me away from it is like, you know, pretty much a, a pure, peaceful, joyous awareness of, of existence, you know, mm -hmm. and I've, I've accessed these states of consciousness in peak experiences, right? Like certain psychedelic uh, experiences. Yep. And I, you know, people may, ha people have various opinions about that. And like, like for me, they're of the utmost, uh, you know, uh, care and, and, you know, connection and mystical slash spiritual experience. But, you know, I, I, yeah, I try to um, put myself in a position whereby I can kind of express those, those, qualities is not the right word but principles or values or states of being as much as possible and sometimes i do a good job and sometimes you know I'm, i get off course but the reason why i continue to pursue an understanding in this regard is because you know when i was younger i um i wanted i was a fat kid right and i, I wanted to not be fat right but it took so much willpower to like always you know go to the gym or eat right or not eat the cookies or whatever and so I was like, man, if I could just believe that doing the right thing for myself uh, was like also the thing I wanted to do, like if I could somehow connect those two, this would all be much easier. You know, I wouldn't have to invoke willpower because I would just be almost compelled. And I've kind of wrestled with this idea before of, of maybe one of the qualities of profound truth is that it compels because it's unarguable with. So it's just, it's a bare truth. And all you can do is submit to it and be, yep. yeah, exactly. And be compelled by it. And so what I wondered back then was like, how do I generate belief, right? How can I, how can I, you know, inject belief into my mind so that I can not be so, it doesn't have to require so much of my energy and will to, to do what I want to do. And the only answer that I could come up with was that I need to seek I need to seek truth because that's the only thing that can instill 
an impenetrable belief, let's say. And so if, if this was in the realm of like health and fitness and wellness, then for me, the approach was gather as much information as possible, read it all, consume it all, experience it all, trial it all. Cause that's the only way that I could determine that I could actually uncover or get increasingly towards a truth. And the reason why I did that is because the closer I got towards the truth, the easier all of that became. And yep. to the point, to the point now where in my life in that particular domain, that's where I'm at. Like, I don't, I don't invoke any willpower whatsoever for my quote unquote health practices. I'm compelled into them because they make me feel the way I want to feel. And so I, yep. I think, I think this has parallel application in, you know, the fields of one's spirituality or just like daily life and what they manifest. And I think that's part of the reason why I so, you know, uh, determinedly pursue truth in all other domains, because I want to be compelled by that truth into right action, something like that, in, into effortless right action to bring it kind of full circle to, to what we were saying a few minutes ago. And so that's why I'm so doggedly determined to pursue truth in all domains of my life. Mm -hmm. So I want to highlight something you just said there. Your health practices require zero willpower. Mm. Most people wouldn't find that believable, John. I get yeah. it. But I think most people would be like, what the hell? Like, what do you mean it doesn't require striving? Like, everything costs so much effort. I have to drag myself away from the fridge and the brownies. And, like, I have to drag myself to the gym. Like, it's a constant world of, like, self-butt-kicking rather than being. Mm -hmm. what what was the magic place for that started transition for you from believing that it was possible to actually being capable of entering into that place i think it was the feeling that i was chasing i guess you know like the 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 feeling of doing things right started to uh separate or like be so superior to the feeling of not doing things right, that it became, that's, that's the process of it becoming effortless. So for example, like when I would think, okay, if I wake up and I eat garbage and I don't move and I don't get fresh air and I don't get sun, first of all, that primary objective that I referenced earlier of, of having mental, of, of being clear and having my kind of whole being be maybe not as clear as possible, right? Cause I'm not perfect, but like very clear. Uh, doing that was counter to that objective and it felt really bad and I would beat myself up more for like well no I wouldn't beat myself up I didn't like feeling that way and what I did like feeling like was having that clarity and, and feeling fresh and feeling stimulated and and receptive and capable of you know uh, engaging the world on optimal terms that 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 all of that together just pulls me forward and I don't have yep. to, I don't have to kick my own ass to do it because it's where I want to go. And it, it kind of connects back to that thing that I was thinking about when I was a kid. It's like, that's what I was striving for. I was striving to find the thing that would come like the truth that would compel my behavior absent, like a invocation of, of my will and determination. And that's what most religions are, right? It's like, this quest to find 
the way to be faithful to the desire so that you could have what you're looking for. Mm. It's this whole dialectic of desire, just like C.S. Lewis describes it. I think the real... Go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say, I think the real tricky part is, is like making sure that that thing that's pulling you forward and causing your, your actions to be effortless is the right thing. You know, and this this is like the pitfall of belief and idolatry and religion and all that kind of stuff. Because if you nail it, right, if it if it is the right thing, then you've accessed the eternal wellspring of of being, of energy, of 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 life. Let's say, and yeah. and life flows through you effortlessly, and you know all the wonderful things that you can do with that. If it if you if you don't get it right, or if you let's say. Um, assume you've gotten it too early in the journey or, you know, whatever the pitfall might be, then I think it can be quite problematic because you can, you can believe that you've oriented yourself most optimally, but you may have oriented yourself towards manifesting something that is not optimal or in the worst case, uh, deleterious or destructive. Yep. Cause those are the people who do the most evil those who are true believers that they're doing what's right. I mean, you think about like Hitler. Yeah, sure. Aryan agenda, all that nonsense, right? It's like, those are people, and this is why deception's so bad, because deception tells you that you're inside of something that you're not. Yeah. It's an inoculation to truth where you exclude evidence that's trying to give you friction with reality to bring you back to it that enables you to try to live in this flow state inside of a false sense of being. Mm. I mean, we see that today with the people worshiping the power of the state and then this whole vaccine imperialism bullshit where they have this mass psychosis where they're effortlessly out there evangelizing, believing they're doing what's right because they've just been tricked. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's the hard part, right? Is we need religion that's capable not just of integrating us to desire so that we can be faithful to it, but that's also capable of answering the question of the human dilemma. So, so let, me, let me step back a little bit further. A worldview is something that we believe that influences the frame through which we interpret all of reality, whether we realize it or not. Yep. What you did as a child there is you intentionally cultivated your worldview to align deeper with truth of believing that if you could integrate your own required work with your desires, that you could access a higher state of being. Yep. You weren't taught that. You weren't reading a bunch of stuff as a kid to know that at the time. Really, you discovered that after you did it. Mm-hmm. You, like a prophet, reached off into the ether and pulled that piece of truth into yourself because you could just hear it. You just knew it. There is a part of you that resonated. And that one little nugget there has defined pretty much your entire life. You could pull that down to one statement there. Like John Vallis as a kid knew that integrating desire of what you want with the work enables higher planes of being. And that one little resonant piece right there has unlocked all of this potential that you're creating in the world today. How many more nuggets are out there like that? <laughs> like, <laughs> how many of them ever think that he'd integrate it, right? 
Because you think about the things you're capable of doing that are at a higher bandwidth and a lower energy cost than anybody else around you that are trying to copycat you and do the same. You're just at a state of existence. They just can't even keep up with in this realm that's your niche of your topics you explore and go at, go after with people. That's why there's nobody in this space really competing with you because they're doing it in friction against their self and not in that deeper flow as you are. So you're operating at a higher dimension, right? But how many more dimensions are there and how do we get to the next one? I mean, that's what we're kind of going over <laughs> and over and over the series. So what, like a few things here, I think we need to integrate into our worldviews that are important for this conversation. Mm-hmm. Humans are inherently disintegrated creatures. We are self-opposing even in our, inner, in our own internal lives. Our desires, our minds, our bodies, we are constantly in conflict with ourselves. Part of the true religious journey is learning where those conflicts are and seeking resolution of them so we could be integrated beings. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if we're always trying to pursue integrating our exterior world to our interior desires, one of the cruxes of that journey is our own internal contradictions. Mm-hmm. Because, because you, if need, you, can't you need to you, you, self, you need to reconcile them before you can integrate it with the exterior world, right? Exactly. Because if you can't integrate self, how do you integrate co-authoring the larger story with reality as mm-hmm. an inventor, creator, writer, whatever, right? It's like it flows from that place of integration, just like it did with this discovery of the worldview you had as a child. But it also begs this question of a few other key pieces. Uh, Like Paul says this so well in one of the letters to the New Testament churches in the Bible. He said to the church at Rome, actually, he says, I do that which I don't want to do, and I don't do that which I do want to do. Who will save me from this mess that I'm in? That's one of the most critical pieces. I do that which I don't want to do. I don't do that which I do want to do. And we tend to try to overcome that with effort. You, you got a one little hack forward here. If you pulled the nugget down of integrating a worldview change. So you changed a part of your being by changing your worldview and your belief system. And through, so through that choice, it's in worldview changes are choice, right? You're using your will to enforce a different way of seeing the world on yourself until it integrates. So that you become a different person, you become mm-hmm. a different state of being. Now you're iterating that towards what you believe is your truer state of being, which obviously you did because look at how much good you're doing in the world and how beautiful it is, right? I just I freaking love it. Thank you, brother. But but that is something that we have to do over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the next question of what do we do when our desires are wrong? How do you know when your desires are wrong? How do you change them? So, so let's, let's pull that thread up. Do you have any experiences of that sense of self-contradiction along that journey of integrating that worldview? And what did you do when you ran into that? How did you grapple with like resolving that? Of not doing what you do want to do and doing what you do want to do and doing what you don't want to do. Having to dig into memory here, which is not my strong suit. <laughs> well let me ask it this way yeah when you do run into that what happens when you run into one that you're not able to overcome 
are you running into ones you're not able to overcome to get into this integrated state? I know I am. Give me an example. I'll give you an abstract one because it's easier for people to understand versus going to my current personal journey. Sure. Um, say you've got a child who grew up in an abusive home. Like a daughter who had an abusive dad, she usually finds an abusive husband because that abuse is comfortable. She doesn't want to be abused. She wants to be loved. It hurts her. She hates it. But there's a part of her that searches for it. It's a self-sabotage that baked into her worldview she doesn't realize is there. So how do we discover the places we're self-sabotaging? So like you did it where you realized you were fighting yourself. You just literally just said like, this shouldn't be this heavy. Mm. I'm the problem here. I need to change me. And then you went and quested for truth to find the truth you could integrate into your worldview to change your sense of self. Mm -hmm. But go ahead. I, I was going to say, I mean, it sounds to me like self-sabotage is simply like the, you know, the unconscious incongruence between your integrated self and the exterior world that you're confronting. And perhaps also the, the future world and self that you're attempting to construct right it's like a blind spot it's a bias it's a something you're unconscious of that's not congruent i, I think I, it's difficult for me to give you a precise example i mean i'm sure there's multiple examples on a daily basis where you're just you know assumptions don't meet reality and stuff like that but uh i think this is part of the i mean this is why i'm currently at least so hung up on and maybe maybe i've always this has always been my disposition, but on seeking truth, because that is my best chance of minimizing those incongruencies or incongruences between myself and, and the world. And I guess, you know, and this was never an articulated uh, or explicit understanding, but I, I guess the subconscious knowing of some kind was that the, the greater you can unify the two, uh, the better outcome you're going to experience and maybe the better thing you're going to manifest. You know, when I was in a soul sucking, when I was in my soul sucking job in, in Shanghai, when I was working in finance, like 10 years ago, um, 10 years ago. Yeah. Fuck almost. Um, I, you know, I hated it. Right. I'd wake up and just big sigh and put on my stupid, you know, suit and cufflinks and all that jazz and go and do the thing. And, um, you know, it, it, it was, it was horrible, but one of the, the, I, I, I never let go of, of the faith that basically what I, you know, the way I framed it at that time was like, if I could wake up and do the, if I could continuously close the gap between what I wake up and I have to do and what I wake up and I want to do, and which feels the best kind of what we've been talking about. If, if my whole life is just closing the gap, then I'll be, because of, because of how I'm going to feel when that gap is minimally or maximally closed, let's say, when it's like, when those two things are closest together, I, I, I always had a faith that that would feel so good that if I, I would kind of tell myself that even if I only felt that by the time I was 70, right, I spent my whole life just slowly closing that gap, then it would be a worthwhile journey. 
because you'd actually, this is exactly what we've been talking about. You'd actually be able to wake up and you'd be, at, you'd be able to be yourself and engage in, uh, in something optimally congruent with what that self is and be able to manifest something valuable in the world as a result. And, you know, I, I'm happy to report that that gap has been closing a lot faster than, you know, I, I was anticipating at that time. And it's an amazing feeling, right? To be able to, uh, to express what you think is your authentic or genuine self, or at least whatever point in that journey you're on and share it and, and express it out in the world and, and have, you know, not only have that be enjoyable, but have it represent some degree of value both to myself and, and other people, right? Like, and to see it happening in a lot of other people too. And to, and to be having this very conversation to try to unravel some of what's going on there. Um, I, don't, I don't remember the original question I was responding to there, but that, like that process is, has been something that's been on my mind for a long time. Like for me, like uh, also there's a little personal piece. Part of my early story is having lost someone I deeply loved that I wasn't capable of saving. And it's funny, right? Because these kind of things shape you. Mm. They shape this dialectic of desire of who you are, where they become the foundations of both your true self and the false selves that you could get distracted into being. Like for me, you can easily see how that influences the Citadel stuff I'm up to. <laughs> it's just so innate to who I am that it's a part of the driving force of me. And that's not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. Mm. It's a part of that story of my life that helped co-author me into being me. But it's so difficult, too, because those things all become a part of our worldviews. They influence us without us realizing they're influencing us. And that's where it's a problem, where your mm. will is not being exercised, you're a slave. Mm. Like free will and discipline are the foundation of freedom. And it comes through, like you were saying, clarity. You have to have clarity of your why, of your who, of your choice, of not letting the external external mimetic impulses of humanity these things that implant desires into you from outside because we're inherently mimetic creatures dictate you without you realizing it but nor can you let your unexplored unexamined world views dictate your choice without you realizing it like for me when i was younger and even now this isn't very easy like i have tons of people reaching out to me in dms that already want to be refugees at the citadel i'm building I have tons of people reaching out that aren't willing to do the work, but want to throw themselves at my team of like, let me just show up and pretend to do the work and then I'll get to reap from the safety of it all. Right. Mm. And it's so hard to remember that my purpose is to be out here building something that's meant to help protect those I love and to help rescue those I love and to help build a world that's going to have these nodes and networks of safety so other can rely upon it to be able to help protect those they love too. Mm. 
but to not let that get twisted to where I fail at that because of that worldview I have pulling at me to be untrue to myself because I have this need to satisfy this part of my identity, right? It's like I'm being true to this self by what I'm building, but I have to know intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, where in myself is on alignment with that desire at what time? Because sometimes my heart is in alignment with my purpose of this thing I'm doing is helping rescue others. And I love it because that's what I want to be doing. Other times that heart is trying to move against my purpose because trying to rescue this place is actually a compromise that is going to lead to wasting energy. That's not going to serve building what I want to build. Right. I have to be able to, draw boundaries around as well even when it hurts that part of me that wants to save everyone right Mm -hmm. because that loss became foundational to our worldview so our worldviews are something that we have to explore and examine that to me is what i think we keep bumping into here this idea of religion religion is being true to the desire by understanding your lens through which you interpret reality so that you can become an active author of your story versus a passive participant. Yeah. Yeah. We want to be authors, not just characters. Totally. And, you know, this is why I've been, har- like, you know, exploring this so much lately. Um, you know, the, the religious enterprise is what I've been terming it as, because I think that's what it is, right? It, it's, it's, it's saying we all have an a priori framework right uh with constructed from certain axioms some certain true is true enough that we construct that worldview by and engage the world with the religious enterprise asserts and in my opinion i'm discovering i think rightly that it matters what that framework what principles or axioms that framework is constructed with and then and and like the the rationalists would readily accept all of this i just think they fail to do they fail to take the last step which i think is an is an entirely rational step which the religions do take which is to say okay if we agree that uh there are certain axioms or principles that most op or construct the most optimal worldview such that you can most optimally engage the environment or reality that you're you're living in to, let's say, produce the most good to live in in most integrated alignment with yourself and, and, and collaboration with your peers and the environment in which you exist. What does that say about the reality in which you live? You know, so in, in my opinion, why is it that certain of those axiomatic principles lead to the best outcomes? And I, I, I think, like, I don't know why we wouldn't think that it's because whatever constructs the reality that we exist in, that consciousness contends with, why wouldn't we assume that the reason why those principles are most lead, lead to the most successful outcomes is because there's something about the very structure of the reality that we're nestled within uh, that those principles are resonating with, right? So if it's honesty and if it's truth and if it's, you know, the, these, these sort of principles that we always discuss and that are very often associated with 
godlike figures, regardless of the particular faith or religion that we're talking about, like that just makes a lot of rational sense to me. And I think that the rationalists just, they, they go through that observational process and they say, okay, like let's observe human behavior. Let's look at outcomes. Let's, in, let's extract the, the ethic or the moral or the principles that lead to the best outcomes. But then I, I just feel like for, for some reason, they don't uh, make the final step in saying like, well, any, in a, in, a, in a universe of infinite possibility where anything could be the case, why is it the case that these principles and embodying these principles, let's say, lead to the best possible outcomes? And I think it's a fairly reasonable assertion to say, well, because they're somehow built into the structure of the reality that consciousness contends with. And then the religious enterprise, perhaps, is trying to uh, explore and communicate and explicate that world in the, in the most powerful way possible and trying to say, like, how do, we, how do we refer optimally to that unseen reality that these principles are resonating with? Let's, let's do our best to construct that world for ourselves such that we can better understand it and more optimally engage it. That's my current interpretation of, of the religious enterprise. And, and it, as a result of that, like when we talk about these principles that you know, in this quest for truth that we're seeking. And when we stumble upon these principles and we embody them and they end up, they feel good. They open the world up to us. They allow us to co-create, you know, why not refer to those things as godly principles? Because they are the very thing that's causing reality to unfold in the best way possible. So that's kind of my current thinking on, on, on the enterprise. This is so interesting, right? Because this whole conversation, I would define this thing as like, this is like milk and not meat. Like this is like most religion is just trying to discover the starting line, not even really trying to talk about the actual work of the journey itself. Because we're so lost that we don't even realize that surrender to truth, faithfulness to desire, and then integrating the exterior world with our interior world is the point of the journey, right? That we view that whole process of even discovering that that's even possible and then learning to get to that place as if that is the religious enterprise. That's not. That's just to get to the starting line so that you can actually get to being who you are, which is where the journey actually starts, right? right? right it's right. like, it's like we've gotten arrogant how much we've forgotten and then that we build all these little altars to these little nuggets and treat them as if they're the ultimate thing yeah. when they're these little tiny fragments of what's actually inside of the infinite possibilities, right? Like, let's frame reality this way. If life is about co-authoring, we've been given microcosms to understand this. Like a, like a child when he's born, he knows nothing about who he is. He doesn't even know what he wants. He just cries when he's hungry and cries when his wife, his diaper needs changing. And then like, he slowly kind of becomes a sense of self that knows he has a body and knows this hand's my hand and that like, this body is my body and I can't stick it through the physical plane of being because other things can't be where I am. And when I look at mom and smile, I, I become happy because I feel her happiness. And like, you slowly learn what reality is and what a sense of self is and all that, right? Mm. But then it's like, as a child, your parents tell you who you are. 
like, man, look at you, buddy. You're fast. You know, like, oh, man, I'm fast. I'm an athlete. <laughs> hey, look at you, buddy. You're smart. Like, oh, I'm smart. I'm a scholar, you know, like, and where this co-authoring begins is it's largely driven by the initiative of the greater will, the will of the parent. The dad is the framer of reality. He names the child. He tells the child who they are and what reality is like. Mm-hmm. They osmotically, because they still are very flexible as a child, just import the worldview, import the identity of the sense of self. It all just, just boom, it's there, right? You don't even really have to think about it. Versus like with us, our quest to become a greater self, we're very intentionally going out and choosing like, is this right? Is this wrong? And it's a whole journey. And it's work. We wrestle with it. A child doesn't really have to do the work to try to integrate. Or us, when we contradict ourselves, we have to just, through habitual reinforcement, learn to integrate it. Just not let that false self get any preeminence, right? A child, it's their dad says it, it's just in. Mm. Okay. But that sense of it being in slowly transitions from it just being because dad said so to when the child's growing up, it's, oh, I believe my dad. I think he's right. My dad's really smart. He's really strong. He's my hero. I believe him. And so then as you age, you hit that 13-year-old, 14-year-old point. You start pushing back a little bit, start to try to grapple with what you believe about the world and what you believe about yourself. And now it becomes more active of you believe what your dad says because you choose to believe it. But he still has a lot of influence over you. And you have a lot of these things you believe that you don't realize you believe them because you've not explored your worldviews yet. They're just so foundational to the, your lens that you don't even realize you're seeing through those glasses, right? And usually it takes people into their 20s and maybe even like up to their 30s to start really getting to a place where they realize how much of that is coming from their, uh, their initial upbringing. So it's this journey of you taking more possession of your rights as the author over your sense of self. Okay. And then that ascends even farther. Like a, a child leaves their father, father and mother and clings to their, their spouse. So now you have this other being who doesn't get to dictate identity. of You You are who you are, but you get to dictate together the world you're creating with children and tell them who they are. So it's like an ascension of planes of being. It's like parent to child, you're a self that's being put into you. Child growing up, it's about growth. You are ascending in control over what you integrate of choice of who you are. And then the highest plane is that plane of romance where you take that ascended self of choice and you integrate it with one external to you to become one, just like this religious enterprise, right, of integrating the external and the internal so that you can create worlds of your own and then gift those worlds into others. So if we extrapolate that up, what if that's a metaphor for our reality as we're meant to experience God? So like immature religion is religion like a child where you first start to realize like my daddy's a hero and like I believe this because he's told me to believe it. And, like you start to discover it's good. You're exploring your worldview and then you start to integrate your sense of self. And then like, so like phase one religion is where you become an adult and are choosing of like my dad really was the hero. He really does know what he's doing. He's super strong. He's super smart. Like, my dad's freaking awesome. I'm going to try to be like him. So now you're, like, by choice pursuing this place. But what about phase two? What about romance? 
What about co-authoring with one who's on the same plane of being as you are? What about taking that to a step level, a step higher? What about co-authoring with God on an equal state of being where him and you are working together as collaborators? I mean, we don't ever talk about that much in the religious enterprise either. Because yeah. we like, we've got to even get people to realize that being a child is the first step. That this surrender to doing the work of integrating your worldviews, your desires with truth, with goodness, with beauty, so that you can ascend into that place of freedom. And then from that infinite expanse, because like truth is inherently expansive. Like you think about light or darkness, right? Like self-deception always leads you away from that place of flow, from that place of being under rest and have that work just be effortless because you're working against yourself. So you're always kind of spiraling in this place of striving to getting further and further away from just being able to do. Mm-hmm. It's like you're solving all the wrong problems, right? Yeah. And so if we take this back to the higher conversation, this is part of that tension between capitalism and communism. Communism says like utopianism, like utopia is the goal where everybody has their needs met and we're able just to be our real selves is that's what it's kind of purported as. But it actually just leads to death because nobody gets to be their real self. They're all a slave to the state. and They're all racing to the bottom doing useless stuff because somebody else is making the decisions for them. And that's the real problem, right? Because it doesn't align with what I'd call like the father worldview, where you are growing into self-possession of self-sovereignty. And I believe that's what we've been created to be as little kings, right? Like we're created to be gods in a sense with self-determination where we're stewards of reality who can create and rule just like God does. In a communistic frame, they try to be the parents and keep you from ascending. They try to keep you in that like little child stage, which keeps society stuck in that little child stage where you're just fighting over scraps like, oh, dad, it's not fair. He stole my cookie. It's like, well, like, go get more ingredients to make more cookies or go grow more ingredients and get a bigger oven and feed the world, make money selling cookies. Like, like nobody thinks larger because they're all forced into this paradigm of being a child. Mm-hmm. Versus capitalism is pretty powerful because it's an invitation to that next phase of, okay, I now have these skills. I have this belief of what I'm capable of. Now I'm going to go be an adult and make choices to start creating reality and co-authoring like a story around me of who I am and what I can, what I can do. Right. But the world you and I are talking about is that next phase shift. It goes into actually freedom of will and mutual consent, bringing unity like romance and the value that's possible inside of that infinite landscape. Like we, like we opened at the very beginning, like romance feels like predestination freedom all at once. But doing that as a society at large, because we have this new tool of money that's enabled us to connect and communicate about human identity, energy, and language in a way we've never done before. So yeah, let, go ahead. Go for it. Go for it. So I, 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 yeah, I was just going to say, stop that one. back. So I was like, let's just circle back to where we were and just say, like, this is all really deep and people are going to probably love this idea of religion equally in this journey. But to me, I don't want to get arrogant, and make it seem like this is a real like big to do. 
like to me we've lost so much that this conversation seeming profound almost makes me want to laugh because <laughs> we're just talking about getting to the starting line yeah so that we could be brothers again to start collaborating to really do what we want to do of making the world and being ourselves and working together to make it the way we want to make it yeah so here's my question and this maybe brings it a little bit down to earth a little bit more because you know you asked me about my purpose you talked a little bit about your purpose and then you were just talking about value and, and coming to uh, the place where you can engage in the thing that you believe is most valuable and co-create you know and be not at the starting line but like you, you know to the point where you can co-create with let's say the ground of being uh, to to manifest the things of greatest value in collaboration so I have two questions about that and I guess one, the first one is, is like, how do you, how do we, in that state, how do we determine what should be created? What are the, like, how does that relationship impact our perception of value and what gets created? And, you know, maybe a step back from that is in the recent piece I wrote, I I kind of explore the utility of truth as being both uh, means to end and end in itself. And by what, what I mean by that is that I think that regardless of what your goal is, the truthful information that most expedites your movement toward it becomes the thing of greatest value. Now, to follow that into two ends, what you could then say is that that truth you're using truth in that way and pursuing it in that way ultimately leads to union with the goal or the ideal that you're seeking. And to me, that's, that's uh, the idea, or that is, that is liberation when you unify with the ideal. And if the ideal that you're unifying with is not just simply like a mundane goal, but it's the highest ideal and truth has led you to it. And that the ideal may even be truth. And I know it sounds somewhat circular, but you've, you've used truth to unify with the ideal that is truthful knowing of, of some kind. And my question is, is like, I think you could, you could uh, describe that state of consciousness, let's say, as a type of enlightenment, nirvana, union with God, you know, these, uh, these states of consciousness or awareness that have been uh, attempted to be articulated throughout the ages forever in vain because words can't really approach that area, but we've developed these words to try to speak to them to some degree. Um, but what my question, like those states are often kind of like pure existing rather than co-creating, you know, like a kind of like a calm, peaceful, in the present moment, no detachment no, uh, no detachment from everything else, right? You kind of, there is no you, you become connected with everything else. And you, you're, you're kind of a pure, you know, cosmic awareness for to, to invoke a, you know, cliche terms as we do throughout the conversations like this. But what, how then do you determine right action? What, what should be brought into the world when you're co-creating or when you're unified with the ideal on to such a degree you know like does god want uh, maybe i should term it differently but 
do the principles that we've been discussing that may indeed imbue an element of the structure of reality that our consciousness engages with, do those seek expression in ever greater complexity of creation? Or is that some kind of a pitfall based on our own human discomforts and, and maybe false desires like we've been exploring? You know, and, and just to put a capstone in it on this, I, I guess, so on the one hand, you could say, yes, they are somehow uh, being brought forth by those principles and the, the, the ever greater complex, complexification of, of being and what and creation is good, or uh, that's actually an illusion and we should we should be satisfied with the relationship that we're able to establish in that way and live as simply as possible. You know, the kind of the, the various cultures throughout the, the ages that have not, let's say, prioritized or uh, strived for innovation and, and complexification, but, you know, found a, a state and kind of attempted to remain there. So I get, I mean, and this loop, this, this, feeds into my personal question to you because it, it's relevant to how you, you were talking about how you had discovered your purpose later and you, you're, you're kind of always having to readjust and walk that fine line of being true to the purpose, even when it's difficult and when you have to have, you know, challenging uh, discussions or interactions with people and that kind of stuff. So what is it about this relationship we've been talking about that has led you to such a high conviction that your purpose is indeed valid and and your purpose there is so much to unpack. <laughs> but let me ask you a question first this will sure. die i'll use it to dive in sure. have you ever been involved in a romance with a girl where you and her together were matched beings in a way that unlocked your gifts higher and you unlocked hers higher so just by the nature of being together, you are capable of more? Capable of more, like in what way? In, in material like, like land? Like that flow state. Well, just the flow state in the sense that your gifts to do what you do were easier and the bandwidth or skills were greater. Got a little uh, lawnmower happening outside temporarily. I hope, hopefully it's not too disruptive, but... Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure about that one. So I can, it's hard to answer. Okay, so let's just go back to a little of the big thing I was saying before, where like a child, a parent, if you got a good parent, the, the parent's helping the child become their best version of self. And then later in the journey, the child is out there living by choice, being their best sense of self that they can figure out how to create by choice. And then like romance, it's like, you found somebody to help you be a better sense of self. They're all stories of growth, but they're growth from a different kind of interpretive lens. Growth as a child external, growth as a self internal that you're choosing. And then it's external and internal integrated into one in a romance. And so it's interesting because there, if you believe that's possible, there's actually this place where say you are being faithful to your desires when you're pursuing things that don't even necessarily look like they satisfy your desires so even if you look outside of romance itself 
say you look just towards brothers where it's like i'm building this the citadel story and i need help i can't do this on my own so i need others around me who have skills i don't have when i invest in spending time with brothers i'm actually investing in accomplishing my desires for building this place of safety of the citadel network it doesn't necessarily look like it like this time with you is a part of that i mean i'd like I don't know where to lead one day, but every brother I meet, every brother I meet through talking with you and they hear us talking, like it's leading to me having people around us who dream of these same things and then bring their skills to bear to help me co-author, right? And so even in building these relationships, I'm serving the purpose of building the Citadel Network. It doesn't look like it. I'm not out there working on business plans. I'm not out there like, I don't know, digging fence post holes for the ranch to feed people but like it's still a part of doing the work so what we have to realize is that doing the work doesn't always look like what we think it does through a simplistic interpretation right we got to get the foundations right where like like jordan peterson one of his big pushes was like always tell the truth right like honesty matters that's one of your cornerstones and then after that, we've got the Bitcoiners coming and saying that freedom matters, human consent and choice. Okay. And then we have people starting to build things together. I'm like, okay, well, honesty matters, freedom of choice matters, and consent matters. But now, like, collaboration matters because I need teams to do this with me because I can't do it all on my own. And so it's like you got this evolution of all these pieces moving forward. So where we are is a question of what are these worldviews we need to integrate to make that possible? What are the places that enable us to walk this journey and what are the places that hold us back from it? And it's interesting because you got like religion where they get focused on these little microcosms, but they ignore the journey as a whole. So say like we get focused on morality like do the right thing, don't do wrong. But in reality, holiness is important because holiness is a description of integration. If you're unholy, it just means that you have things in you that are working against yourself. You're not integrated. You're not going out there and collaborating with others to your maximal potential because of being faithful to both self-honesty and external honesty. You have really, I mean, anything that's unholy at some point can be boiled down to deception. It doesn't really matter what it is. I mean, lust is deception. Lust is deception of my desire for love and romance by telling myself that this experience will satisfy even though it's not this union of being that I want. So like everything that boils down into morality, like you can even talk about adultery as a form of deception. It's deceiving yourself away from doing the work of integrating with another being to build family as if like your god created new life right in the image of god so starting this journey from that perspective of every one of these pieces shouldn't be isolated and have this world built around it as if it's the most important piece except through this interpretive lens of reality is about growth and it's growth through those paradigms of like childlike growth, adult-like growth, 
romance-like growth. I mean, romance is growth too, even if you just talk about through the friction of you guys are two completely different alien beings, men and women, who are like completely different states of reality. And the friction between those forces you to bring out all your weaknesses so that they can be like at the surface to be dealt with by you, to be grown so you can become more of who you really are too, right? But it's different than doing it with parents and it's different than doing it on your own. <clears throat> so taking that journey and then even integrating it into the exterior world of how we collaborate together as humans. Okay, so I wanted to frame that first. So let's circle back then and then dive back into what you were saying. Where do you want to dive in as far as the questions? You want to fit back like a like a sub question to me? You want to just go back to the original and just iterate that again and go back in there? Well, I think that was all great uh, context. But one of the questions that we've been exploring is like, how do you determine right action, I guess, to put it simply? And when you, you know, your purpose in doing what you're doing, and we've discussed, you know, how uh, you really need to be careful to uh, not assume you're pursuing right action when perhaps you're not. Now, of course, there's always, you can always um, uh, correct, you know, you can always get feedback and course correct. So, you know, you can always save yourself as it were. but uh, and you may have answered this uh, a little bit already, but I, I guess it's still the point, like, how do you know that you're co-creating properly? How do you know that your, your aim is the right aim? Something like that. And if you feel you've answered it already, really? then just, just go so, on. But With that context, I think it's really easy to answer that. Does it lead to co-op? So any fallacy is something that destroys that. You've got a fallacy of, say, like the communist fallacy, which is the easy one we keep coming back to, that destroys the sense of self so nobody gets to be an author. That obviously doesn't work because you can't co-author if you personally aren't authoring. Religion often does the same. Like, uh, like that's one of the problems I have with a lot of people of how they do psychedelics, right? Is they're pursuing this place of discovery, but they don't do what you did. You go out, you discover, then you come back and do the work to integrate so that you can become a larger author right it doesn't just become about the psyop of like let's go out and see if just to experience more and more and more but never do the work mm. and it's just everything keeps coming back to that co-authoring is all about doing the work but now let's say we have this fixation on let's become like the biggest authors we possibly can be on our own but that's lacking humility because we just can't it doesn't work that way. I'm not created to be able to do everything. I'm not, I, like, honest, when I'm honest, I know that's just not possible. Like me building the Citadel Network stuff. I need others. So then it's like, how do I create clear signal in the channel for collaboration to happen? Anything that's in the way of that is something that's being destructive of this journey. So you're literally just looking to get rid of the noise that keeps you from co-op. And then you're trying to ascend and how do we do this in greater ways? If you're faithful to that, it's just like the dialectic of desire, that it's going to correct all false measures. Everything that's working against truth is going to become readily apparent. Like if you look at these, I don't know, Karenites with this whole facts agenda and pushing like the state getting to make medical decisions for us, this whole push is obviously 
a falsity, right? Like some of these people may even exist in something that's like a mimicry of the flow state because they've given their will so strongly to the state narrative and agenda that they're just effortlessly out there channeling this, <laughs> this freaking darkness, right? Mm. But when push comes to shove, yeah, they may be authoring. Yeah, it may be effortless authoring that seems like all these people are out there pushing this hard evangelism and it's like really powerful, you know, like with this elite agenda which is true that happens with other things that are very nihilistic. But it's not leading to co-authoring. Real truth, real religion always leads to co-authoring. That's one of the foundations of my worldview when I interpret it through this lens of life being about growth, growth as a child, growth as an independent, and growth of romance. Because it inherently leads everything back to this idea of co-authoring where I'm trying to ascend into this romance with reality itself, with God himself, to where I'm co-authoring the story around me of creation and submission synchronously of this constant flow state where everybody's telling their lines and I'm telling mine. And each of us being our biggest, best self and taking up the most room makes the most room for others. So that's one of the nuggets of my early worldview that I synthesized on my journey, kind of like yours, is... I believe that when we are our truest, authentic self, it doesn't take up room. I believe it creates more room for others to be their best self, too. Mm -hmm. That is one of the things that I think has gotten stolen from us in the deception of what religion really is. Because we see it as this competitive journey towards nothingness or towards idealized self at the expense of others. And we don't even have to interpret religion as like the typical religious context. I mean, I would view statism as a religion, sure. but they're all religions that sacrifice that price and work that must be done to learn how to co-author together, because that's the place that forces us to do the work here, right. the work integrating out to reality itself, and then integrating here between you and I without compromising freedom. Yeah, it seems because like because that freedom is the divine. Exactly. It seems like both require you to give up your own agency to something else. Right? Yep. Um, and you know, it's interesting when we talk about clarity, you know, this is such a common theme for me. It sounds like it is for you too. And regardless on what level we're attempting, it seems like um, honesty or truthful speech or opening. The, the, the fidelity of the communication pathway is of paramount importance, right? So when, when we're establishing that relationship with the higher principles, the absolute God, whatever you want to call it, opening, you know, part of the reason why we try to establish clarity in our lives, perhaps, is to be more open to being able to connect, receive, collaborate with those principles. The same is true in a romantic relationship, as you were describing. The same is also true from between the individual vis-a-vis -vis the market or the culture, right? You're, you're co-collaborating with the culture you're in and the fidelity of the feedback that you're able to establish is, par is paramount in terms of the degree to which you're able to do that. And, you know, we haven't really mentioned the B word this entire conversation, but I think that's one of the reasons why something like Bitcoin is so uh, important because among other things, you know, that I'm sure we'll discuss throughout the course of this series, but if, if we accept the notion that 
that collaborative relationship is of the utmost importance and establishing it on the truest or most honest or most high fidelity uh, feedback loop, you know, to use perhaps um, an over, overly simplified term, but whether it's with the absolute or with, with a, a partner or with the culture, that feedback loop, the, the, the more genuine, the more truthful that can be, the more optimized you, the better, the, the better position you're in to optimize that relationship and to continue moving it towards greater, uh, you know, unity or collaboration. And that's what the, the function of money serves, at least vis-a-vis -vis the individual and the market and culture in which they're operating. And to have a money that, that resists all distortion and propagates pristinely the information that's being communicated via the action that it's representing, that puts you in a position, the best position possible, it seems, to optimize that relationship between individual and broader culture or society. And if, you know, if we accept that perhaps one of the primary aims of life is to optimize and establish clarity everywhere where that relationship of co-collaboration exists, God, partner, culture, oneself, then we have to assume that the thing that allows us to establish that line of communication with the greatest fidelity and clarity is of tremendous value. And maybe it's the case that, you know, when it's with God or partner or oneself, it's operating on a different level. It's, you know, it's, we are the ones that distorted ourselves, you know, through our communication, our own internal dialogue. But when it's externalized, as it were, out into the culture and our internal contradiction, right, where we are not in integration with self and it bumps into the world around us, causing us to not integrate well with others to co-author. Right. But when when the mechanism is not exclusively internal, but when it's when we've established an externalized mechanism for that purpose in a different relationship, I, I, again, with others, then the thing that allow you know, the thing that allows us to do that in an optimized way has to be of tremendous value. And I think that's one of the things that Bitcoin represents and why it's so, well, one of the reasons why we're so excited about it. Yeah, because it's innate baked into this world of emerging from Bitcoin that freedom of the individual matters, that will of the individual matters, and that we are going to have to do this journey of going out and saying that I have to center my own choice to have control of it and not just follow the external influence of the world around me. Because it's Bitcoin's this world of truth that if you don't surrender to it, you fall to consensus with it, right? So you have to play the game truthfully and surrender to this truthfulness or you leave the game. And so it's created this culture where only those who are willing to do that work of discover the truth and surrender to it have been a part of this early real focus of this emergent community. So it is inherently drawing culturally away from a world that's based upon those who are most pliable to external implantation of mimetic desire. It's like, it's those who are most capable of being the forerunners of ascending from early childhood state to more adult-like state of being. Now, Granted, like you would expect when you got an elementary school or a middle school or a high school with these children ascending, it's this place of utter conflict of people like, oh, I'm a self. No, you're a self. I'm a self. No, I hate yourself. <laughs> you know, it's like 
this massive chaos where yeah okay great freedom matters and now like it's becoming more and more relevant how important is the circle back to honesty matters mm. because I, I just i love peterson how much he pushed this because if you can't be honest here how can you ever learn to be honest in the conflict here so that's your next foundation piece and then it's like okay honest here honest there now we both understand that freedom matters so in the honesty we have to build something that has a place that allows us both to be our best to thrive so that's a whole other foundation of moving forward to reality and then it's just honest together as we go out and try to do it it's like if we just focused on honesty and clarity of signal mattering it's like we're 80 percent there as far as the whole morality conversation goes because that solves almost everything you stack on top of that like honesty and then consent and freedom matter it's like you're 90 percent of the way there it's almost nothing else really you're just you're missing so little for the rest of the pieces there that need to be put on top of that. I agree, and I think it's almost the same as the point that you were making about religion of being not the end in itself, but the starting point. Like once once you have these constituent parts together, then then you you just kind of let time you run the clock forward, and I think these these principles and these relationships will will manifest properly. And, you know, to your, to your point about, you know, how chaotic it can be when all this stuff first emerges, you know, I agree, but I think we've discussed this before, but what we have is a bunch of imperfect people who, and ourselves included, right, who have, who have grown up in a, a totally different sort of environment and system with different, you know, signals and different incentives and all that kind of stuff. And finally, there's a new one is emerging. And, of course, naturally, it's chaotic at first. But what I appreciate so much is not focusing on, you know, how nasty someone might be or whatever. It's that that ethic of honesty and truthful speech being paramount, even if your truthful speech, it doesn't resonate with mine, right? But the fact that the ethic of, of you attempting to communicate what you believe to be true and being honest in the communication of it, that the fact that that ethic is emerging through this newly established relationship, I think is really good. And like, I'm not going to judge it too harshly because it's like day one, you know, but I think that, 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 dude, I love it. You know, and what's so interesting about uh, all of this is like, we, we, we talk about those principles, those godly principles, right? And then we talk about those principles that best establish a relationship with the eternal, with one another, with society and culture. And it's, and we also talk about these principles that are baked into Bitcoin. Right. And they consistently are the same. Incorruptible truth, the propagation of incorruptible truth, high fidelity communication, the assumption or the base assumption that the best, the, the primary means of engaging one another in reality is to ascribe divinity and sovereignty to the individual. And that's what Bitcoin instantiates. And that's what I think the religious stories instantiate. And I think anyone who's just openly seeking truth, as we've been discussing throughout this conversation, those are the principles that they inevitably come across. And so that's why it's so interesting to see not only the reemergence, but, you know, I make the case in, in the piece of writing I just put out that Bitcoin is, is perhaps the highest fidelity representation of those principles that we've ever been able to either observe or engage in. And that in itself is like, you know, that, that's a very, I mean, it's a bold claim, but it's a very interesting uh, notion as well, if it has any legs. Um, so, you know, back to the, the, I guess we were partially talking about like the toxicity and stuff. And 
and I talked about this with Sailor the other day because he was like, you know, you can be, uh, you can be a more strategic operator for, to, to summarize what he was saying. And I agree with him, right? Like people can go about, you know, you can achieve your aims without being so over and obvious about what they are and like calling out stupidity or, or whatever, whenever you see it. But one, you know, to each their own, everyone has their own method of engaging and expressing themselves. But two, you know, the point I made to him was like in, in a culture that we're currently in where it's so PC and woke and everyone's so afraid to express how they really feel, even, you know, even though it's a bunch of imperfect people and, and the things that they may be expressing, maybe their insecurities, their biases, their blind spots in their worldview, all that kind of stuff, it's refreshing that it's honest. And the fact that we're all dancing around this thing yeah. that's, that's uh, pushing pushing up like the hierarchy of honesty and truth is, is, is it tremendously encouraging, I guess. We'll leave it at that. Yeah, I'd have to say, I understand what Say we're saying there, but I don't really like it in the sense that <laughs> I agree being strategic is important. I like, you can tell I'm very strategic and the way I say things, especially like you saw that talk I did in Miami, like I'm very, very careful with the presentations and I mean, I have to be with what I'm building, but like honesty is so important because like, like this has become true with me as I've become more well-known what I'm building and speak in places and whatever. I'm starting to have enough energy around me that I'm having people around me that are there because they're excited. And there's that little bit of fear. If like, if I speak the truth of what I really think, then like I won't get to be a part. And that diminishes the signal when the brothers around me because it's hard to find those who love me enough to be honest with me. Right? Mm. It's like the brothers I love most have this thing in them where there's this, respect of each other where you want each other to be the best they possibly can be and you're pursuing the good of one another but you value truth above like your own self and their own self so as you're pursuing that together is something beyond yourselves so that you're like pursuing surrender to it really is just the best thing to keep coming back to so it's not just necessarily adversarial right and in that you love each other enough to be honest about it and if we're always being strategic to try to get what we want, partly that's codependent because we're assuming that in this community, we want the same thing everybody else wants. And so we're kind of in this weird, messy family thing we necessarily agree on. And it's all this hidden angst of like false peacefulness, right? Because it's not real integration of collaboration. But two, say we even did by chance want the same thing, which in this case, say like hyper-Bitcoinization, that even means the same thing to these other people out there who are being strategic with these big equity invested mining companies versus what we as like the sovereign fighters want. Um, say we get hyper Bitcoinization and we had a reasonable agreement of what that even means to like have done that successfully. Well, great, but now we still have to go through the process of friction because for us to become our best selves interacting in this economy of real value, we got to butt heads. Iron sharpens iron. Like, I love the fact this happens. We just need a proper, healthy context to do that with it. And I, I think we and I are working well on developing that here. Because, like, if we just say this foundation we just talked about, honesty, honesty of self, honesty with one another, freedom, human choice of the individual can never be compromised because that's 
one of the most important facets of reality. And then just say three, that we can't do it on our own, that learning to collaborate with others is really important. If we just start with those three as the place through which we pound heads with each other, then that's going to lead to really healthy places. And the people that aren't willing to pound heads inside of those three are just those that are wasting their time. And that's part of the thing with like the safe space maximalists or the people out there pushing a lot of these liberal agendas in the Bitcoin space, where they don't have the first one. They're not being honest. They're trying to push these things and say, well, you got to care about this and care about that. But what you care about, it doesn't lead towards what you want. Like you're trying to instantiate these beliefs or methods or something that does not integrate. It's not honest. This is just, it's, it's fucked. Like you are saying you're going to fix the environment by getting rid of cows while I'm using cows to fix the environment. Like this is just fucking stupid. Mm-hmm. Or you're trying to say what's fixed like desertification by dropping co2 but well co2 makes the plants we have hold on stronger and they're helping keep the planet green like this doesn't make any fucking sense like yeah it just is not honest it doesn't integrate or it's like well people matter so we need to take care of others and yeah 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 we need to be more accepting but like they're doing it by destroying freedom of saying that like you can't choose what you want to choose well fuck yeah. that doesn't work but if you have these foundations you're inherently going to butt heads with each other in a way that leads towards more truth. And this goes back to the question you just asked, right? Well, how do you know when you're wrong? Well, you don't have the same blind spots I have. My other brothers and my Citadel team don't have the same blind spots I have. My Sage doesn't have the same blind spots I have, and he's got lots of miles behind him having done this journey. In the places I butt heads with these people, every time we do it, we find a place that even if we weren't making a mistake, we understand the world better to ascend to a higher plane. It's beautiful. I mean, even if you go back to the idea of romance we're talking about, you got these two people that can't possibly have the same worldviews because men and women are like completely different creatures. And in that friction, you're constantly discovering more of who you are, who they are, and what reality is. Because friction's beautiful. Mm-hmm. That that's to me one of the most important parts here. But 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 but. So like we can't just slough it off and say, well, it's strategic. We don't have to do the work of friction or like we can't just butt heads uselessly and just say friction's good for friction's sake. And it doesn't really matter because it's just like it's all for enemies. Like we need to have some base level agreements. We can set honesty matters. Freedom of the individual choice matters. Collaboration is good. If we can just get those three locked down inside of our friction and just go back to them. People will fall out of consent with that. Those are the people we don't waste our time on. Mm. And that core will just get more and more volume without losing density because that density at that center is based upon those foundation agreements we have. That's the way I think it should be evolving. Yeah, I totally agree. And, And, you know, for my part, just two points on that is I think one that I try to remind myself to, uh, and it's pretty effortless, really, these days, because, you know, there's an element of not engaging in, in the nonsense. It's like, what's, I have more important things to, to do, right, or things that are more meaningful to me. But I do think, you know, we don't want to lose the ability or recognition of the importance of attempting to understand and empathize with other people. Now, that, that by no means coddle them or whatever, like, you know, but you can, you can, vehemently oppose someone's position but you're you're better served and the totality i think is better served 
if you maximize your degree of ability to understand where they're coming from, right? And then- Agreed, the, the, because if you don't, you can never learn from them, nor can you ever cross the divide to help them learn in the spot you can see where they're blind. Right. Like that's the mistake the safe space maximalists make because they're not being honest with themselves. They're not giving freedom to others. Yeah. So you never actually increase in collaborative potential because you're not doing the work to understand each other, nor are you doing the work to understand yourself. Mm -hmm. It's like phase one, understand self as far as you can. Phase two, try to understand others without compromising that honesty of self, of freedom, and then of collaboration. And if we do that together, that sense of trying to understand others isn't aimless because it's actually leading towards surrender to that higher truth together. Mm -hmm. I think we shut it there for today. What do you think? <laughs> I think there's one little teaser. That I think you'll love. Uh, then we can turn it I, I got, I got, so, you know, we really hung around in this one for a while today. You know, I think I heard a few, a few people commented that, you know, the first one was like kind of all over the place. I got like 20 different notes here of stuff that we, 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 that I wanted to break into, but we didn't touch. So I got lots for the next one, but hit me with the teaser. Okay. So in the Bible, we have so many people in Christianity that talk about heaven and hell, right? Hmm. The Bible actually doesn't talk much about heaven and hell. It's really interesting. A lot of that whole thing evolved later around Christianity. The idea of heaven actually at its base is actually, is, it's really cool. It's almost like Bitcoin of falling out of consensus. It talks about being thrown out of the kingdom into this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what it really is, is if you look at this story of co-authoring to where we're doing the work together, honesty, valuing freedom and human will working on collaborating well in a place of goodness from both of those foundations of being true self being true self together right you inherently have these worlds have developed where people are working well together and things are just unfolding with goodness and truth and beauty this biblical idea of being outside the kingdom is actually a biblical idea almost like salty no corners to where they're not willing to be honest or they're not willing to do the work of handle the friction of getting better together. So they fall out a consensus. And so they're outside of the place where the values occurring. If we look at religion through that lens, a lot of really interesting things kind of come to the surface. That's there's so many things we can explore. Like, uh, like CS Lewis wrote a book called the great divorce where he talked about heaven, where a bunch of people went up on a bus to heaven. And there's all these little metaphorical stories. One of the first ones that, it, that everybody gets off the bus and a lot of the people get off the, get like, as soon as they get off the bus, they fucking hate heaven, get back on the bus and ask to go back down to earth. And the reason was because they were kind of shadow beings in a realm of higher density than they could exist at because they hadn't done the work. Hmm. So they stepped into the giant green pastures of heaven and the grass hurt their feet because their feet weren't of the substance capable of handling a reality as dense and powerful as the one that heaven is. Mm-hmm. So when you look at this biblical idea of being outside of consensus, this is so much like Bitcoin. It's this idea that if you're not doing the work and surrendering to truth, you end up on your own, which is outside of the value. It's, it's not that you're trying to be left outside the value because you're evil and being judged. Like we want you here because the more people here being their best self, the more value we all share it. But we want you here according to these rules. Be honest, respect freedom, 
And now just we're just constantly here at this conversation going back towards, okay, now, if we're honest and respecting freedom, how do we collaborate? How do we work together, not as individuals alone, but as people that are actually doing this together as co-authors? Yeah. There's such an integration here between those spiritual realities as they've been described by so many people and what we've come to understand organically through experiencing the emergence of this Bitcoin world. Yeah. It just, it blows my mind to see the parallels over and over and over again. I know, me me too, me too. That, again, that's why I was compelled to to write that piece I recently wrote. But the, and that that's the idea, which we, I think we were talking about this before we press record today, but implicit in in holding up those those principles is a judgment, right? It's like, let's say it's, it's honesty and freedom. And it basically, whether it's in the religious story or Bitcoin, it's saying, do you accept these principles as some of the highest principles? If yes, access to them and access to everything that, that stems from them. If no, yep. denied from them. And this is the idea that we were talking about where what is the role of submission to higher principles? And like you, you could you can anthropomorphize and mythologize this. And I think you wind up with something very similar to a lot of religious narrative and story, or you could technologically instantiate it. And I think you wind up with something very similar to Bitcoin. And that's, that's the far out, you know, that's the kind of far out notion that we're, we're dancing around here, that the treatment of the two is very similar, but also the principles that that the two are grounded and founded on are very similar. And again, they begs the question, why is that? Why do they continue emerging? And why when they emerge in their highest fidelity representation, are they also the most powerful at eliciting or fostering the best possible good for an individual and their ability to co-collaborate? We'll get into that next time. <laughs> How I define God is God is the place where that value consensus is occurring. He's the showing point of it. Mm. So it's like like the, the gospels, it was often talked about where like Jesus even said this, like, I don't judge you, you judge yourselves. That's kind of how it is with Bitcoin. We see this with salty no corners. Like they're just judging themselves to be stupid because they just don't get it. <laughs> they're not willing to sh believe that human consent and freedom of the individual matters or that honesty matters. And they'd rather have state control so they can be rent seekers. So they're fighting against it. They're paying the price because it hurts to fight against truth. Mm -hmm. And that's what I believe religion is like. That's what I believe it's like when you're judged to be outside of truth and religion is you judge yourself because you're failing to enter into where the real value is. You're yeah. out of consensus of that, what I would term as the romantic reality. Okay.